0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the SurgiBots podcast. Today I sat down with Richard Vincent, co-founder and CEO of Fundamental VR. So you may notice that Fundamental is not a surgical robotics company. The reason why I wanted to have this conversation is because I wanted to add a different perspective. What is that of the training and education space? Fundamental VR are positioned so perfectly to understand where the market's moving. They work with many different companies, including CMR Surgical and Vice Carrier Surgical. So Richard made a great guest, we talked about some really interesting topics, we talked about traditional training pathways, the challenges, limitations, then also what the future looks like in the space. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode. So good afternoon, Richard, and welcome to this episode of the Sergio Gots podcast.
1: Henry, good afternoon. Thanks for having me.
0: Cool. So I always kick off with the same question. So tell me about your background, what's your career up until this point?
1: Sure. Yeah, delighted to. Um, again, thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. Um, so what's my background is really all about technology. Um, the last 30 years, I've been working in advanced technology across a number of different sectors, looking at how you can really use bleeding edge technology to ground today and disrupt and improve a marketplace um, or a different uh, use case. So that that's really the key thing on, uh, that I've been up to. Um, I guess for the last 10 years of my career, really about 10 years ago, I took the decision to move into medtech as I saw opportunities for new technology to have a positive impact in the medical space. So I started to move into that about 10 years ago and have been deep in it ever since. Okay. So
0: is that when you started Fundamental VR 10 years ago or were you involved with it previously before Fundamental VR?
1: So with the precursor to, um, to fundamental VR, yeah, we, we, I was doing some work with, amongst others, Boston Scientific, um, and it was some of that work looking at different ways of delivery in the cath lab uh, within the surgical environment that really started to bring mine and my co-founder's um, mind towards focusing on the work that we've been doing over the last eight years ago. So we started fundamental VR about, about eight years ago.
0: I think brilliant. So tell me the founding story then. So so how did you pull all that together? You're working in Boston Scientific in a previous company. How do you then move through to forming a healthcare VR company?
1: Yeah. So it's um, they say it's startups. Right. There's no no such thing as a straight line. Certainly that's that's true of uh, of, of my journey, um, and I think of most people. I think. Um, as I said, well, I've always been deep into the technology space and I've applied that across multiple different sectors. I started to work in uh, the medical space, looking really at some of the efficiencies of, of product delivery, and particular cath delivery with um, Boston Scientific back in the day. And I could really see a lineup um, between what was starting to emerge Kind of 2012 2013 around immersive technology and it become it showing the signals that it could become truly viable um i could see that and then once i'd seen that opportunity with chris my co-founder we decided this is a great tech to to get, a, get behind and if we can make it work the way we think it needs to work for this particular use case then uh we're on to a really interesting uh proposition so we um, we pulled together some uh, some KOLs, some uh, surgical and educating leaders, to uh, really explore the idea with them. Working with those KOLs, we uh, we started to put together kind of the the epicenter proposition for fundamental VR, and then uh, started from there really. So you know the the, the foundational stones of the of the product really were, and and the proposition were really. Let's deliver true presence without the need for physical movement. Let's give true immersion so that you can feel all of the pressure, the distractions, and the and the conflicting demands on 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 a, a person that's within a high stress surgical environment. Let's give people 3D familiarity, um, and let's give them really importantly let's give them the sense of touch. Let's give them the ability to interact with those virtual patients as we, as they start to progress. And that was really the, the, the start of a fundamental VR. Okay.
0: Brilliant. So up until that point, tell me how you got to, to this and what's your career actually up until fundamental VR, how has that set you up to actually start a healthcare virtual reality company? So take me right back to the beginning education and then work. Forth.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I studied marketing and business, uh, at university up in Sheffield, uh, back in, uh, the early 90s, um, and then from there moved into communications, marketing, and uh, uh, worked across from multiple different sectors. But the one that I kept really close was always kind of innovative new technology. Um, it's always been a passion of mine. I've always been really good at uh, taking things apart and occasionally quite good at putting them back together as well. So um, I went through that kind of process of loving tech, and so when when the dot-com Era started mid 90s. It was really natural for me to jump into that space. So in the the the, the back end of I guess 97, I joined a founding team uh, to start a, a business to business.com. Um, that was in the printing marketplace space. Uh, so so really interesting, um, and you learn a lot about how to raise money, how to build a business fast the mistakes that, that stop a business succeeding and the ones that, that are going to help it to really break free and hit escape velocity. Um, and I did all of that work. And then of course, uh, at the end of the nineties, we had the big bubble burst of, uh, of the dot-com era. And so um, a lot of the funding that was around stopped uh, coming through. And uh, as a result of that, the dot-com I was involved in uh, didn't succeed and I, and I left. Um, we're back to communications. And then whilst in communications and back again working with technology companies like sony playstation uh, in the launch of their ps2 um, in that process started to look again at what new technology was coming through and you know at, at the late 90s mobile phone tech was still very very nascent you know there was no interoperability there was no there was no such thing as a camera phone and um, there was no color screens but i could see what the potential was of, of mobile tech. And so with Chris, my co-founder of that business as well, we started in 2000 a business to really get hold of the innovation that was going on within the mobile space. And we built that business up over the next 10 years, uh, took it to the US in 2004, 2005, um, exited it to a, mar- a large conglomerate in 2006, seven, and stayed with it for a few years before finally uh, closing the door on that particular chapter and moving on to fundamental.
0: Okay. Fantastic. So what, what, actually is fundamental then? So, um, I know what it is. I'm sure a lot of the audience do, but for people who don't know what is fundamental VR, what, are you, what do you guys do?
1: So we're a, we're a company that's at the, the really exciting intersection between immersive technology and haptic technology and we choose to apply that into the medical space. So our platform uh, is called Fundamental Surgery. And what Fundamental Surgery is, is basically a universal platform for medical skills acquisition, uh, to allow surgeons to focus on the surgical skills, the interventional skills, the robotic skills, the image guiding uh, skills they need, to give them safe places to rehearse, to practice, to fail without any consequences. Um, And, you know, what we're doing really is tapping into a problem that's been around for a long time, which is firstly, you know, in in medicine generally, there's just a lot to learn, particularly in surgery, first thing. Secondly, it's getting more complicated and more involved month to month, year to year. Robotics is a great example of that. Thirdly, it's getting more expensive. um, Both the cost of acquiring and learning how to do different uh, techniques, but also the cost of failure. So malpractice, uh, damage that happens, the human cost of, of mistakes is, is, is growing exponentially. And so whilst there's always been ways to train, it's always been a very slow process of using what is an effect, a, a, an apprenticeship model uh, aligned with uh, simulation using generally human tissue and animal tissue. And that's a really difficult, slow process and often very logistically challenged way of learning. Um, So it's not to say that any of those things are wrong. It's just they're quite hard work to work through. And if you talk to anybody who's been through medical school and then gone through residency and then fellowship and, and so on, they'll say that in most cases, the biggest challenge they had is getting access to the learning environments. And that's really where we come in. So we digitize all of that. Uh, we, we make it seamless and easy for people to get into those spaces to accelerate their, um, their access to good cases, difficult cases, challenging cases, and thereby accelerate and flatten the learning curve. And that's really what the business is all about. It's about let's get you to competence and let's get you to, to confidence quicker, really by giving you the opportunity to, to rehearse and practice in very, very detailed simulations uh, on a more frequent basis by meeting you in the place where you are.
0: Okay. So how is that actually delivered? So in real layman's terms, how do you deliver that training and how do you give people that access?
1: So the platform is, is um, well, the simple answer to the question, Henry, is, is you pop on a headset or look into a, uh, a laptop screen and and you go from there. So uh, you know it's it's fairly frictionless when it comes to access to it. Most people, most of our activity happens through uh, a virtual reality headset. Um, but of course, things like you know mixed reality, augmented reality, they can all be part of that that capability. But to your point, staying really simple, we have really three kind of building blocks to the platform, and and sometimes they're all being used, sometimes just one. So the first building block is. Um, haptic VR. So haptic VR is the gold standard. It's the amalgamation of uh, the situational awareness that comes from being in virtual reality, plus the sense of touch, sense of weight, resistance, force feedback, um, all of those elements. It's what we call um, kinesthetic haptics. So I can feel what it feels like to resect a bone. I can feel what it's like to to feel the weight of a liver as I move it out of, out of the way within a at the abdominals space, and so on and so forth. And what, what we're trying to do there with the haptic system really is to, as I said, give you all the sense of being in that space, but at the same time also give you all of the physical cues that means that you can start to really understand when things are going right and when they're going wrong. And again, if you speak to Most surgeons or most physicians in in any surgical field, whether it's EP, uh, interventional, robotics or or other areas, they'll say the sense of touch and the precision that I need that touch for is more often than not essential. And so that's what our haptic VR system delivers. And that's the first building block. The second one is kind of a slightly um, downgraded version of that. So... It's a standalone VR system. So this is great for scale. Um, this is the sort of thing that you could go and buy in um, Best Buy. You could go and buy a, a headset there, pop it on, it's gonna cost you four or $500 and you could use it. Um, it'll give you all that situational awareness. It will give you all of those uh, different scenarios. It will give you the procedural uh, walkthrough of the case, but it's not gonna give you that physical sense of touch. Which, for many use cases, particularly at the early stage of learning, actually aren't that important. So, so it can be great for that medical school, that residency, that sales team training, particularly. Um, but it, it reaches a natural plateau. But those two work really well. And those are the two two key parts of the system. And then the third and final piece is something we call collaboration VR. Um, so that's basically multi-user, multi-multi-user gaming. Yeah. So let's not do it on our own. Let's do it as a team. If I'm going into a cath lab, I'm going in probably with three or four other people. If I'm going into an operating room, I might be going in with a team of 15. Let's allow you to do that within a simulation. So you learn the team dynamics. And really importantly, even without the lead physician there or the surgeon there, the rest of the team can still practice and rehearse. So it allows you to do all of that without physically coming together. You know, you, I could do it in my office, you could be doing it at home, another uh, person could be doing it from, a, from a, uh, a hospital location. It kind of collapses distance and allows us all to just be there and have real presence with one another. And all three of those modules, they all stitch together. So I could be in a standalone headset, you could be in a the haptic VR system, and we could collaborate together across the platform.
0: Okay, brilliant stuff. So, what's the clinical data to back up? So, so why? What are the what what uses have been shown to? Yeah, clinical data. Tell me all about it.
1: So, the short answer is lots. Um, there are enormous volumes now of published studies and validation around different use cases of of virtual reality. So, let, let me let me kind of try and keep it simple. Let me hit it at two levels. So, the first level that's been studied extensively is virtual reality versus traditional training techniques. So traditionally, I might put you in a room, I might give you books, videos, etc, and ask you to run through um, and acquire the skills and knowledge through that process, and then join me within an operating room to to start to learn that, that process. What we found through validation, not done by us, but done by multiple um, healthcare providers across the world, is that the acceleration in knowledge acquisition using VR is somewhere between 60% increase in in, in knowledge acquisition and 250%. So you get there quicker in terms of understanding how you do something. And the reason that happens is you're firing off different parts of your brain. The the physical uh, involvement with that, that that uh, environment, even though you can't touch it, the 3D space that you're in, it fires up a different set of receptors within your brain and it gets you more actively involved with, with that learning process. And I won't get into the theory of, of why that happens, but it, but it does. So that's the first piece of validation and, and a lot, a large body of, of, of material in that space. Then the second piece is, what about the sense of touch? So haptic VR, and how does that add? Now, there's been less research in this space um there was some done some time ago a couple maybe a decade ago or so um which wasn't in vr and that and what that concluded was if the haptics aren't good then it's not helpful and i totally agree with that bad haptics would be bad you'd be teaching people the wrong skills but what we found is really good haptics that align to the actual interaction that you would have in the real world can have again another acceleration rate so we saw a study recently that we supported, but uh, was independent of us. It was done by the NHS, uh, and it looked at um, it looked at a, a particular dynamic around drilling a bone. And once you go through hard bone and you slip out the back, you plunge, and and that plunge causes soft tissue damage. So we were looking at whether haptic VR could aid the knowledge and the skill to the point where you plunged less and caused less physical damage and the answer is absolutely it was about a 44 yeah 44 percent improvement in the lack of plunging i.e people stopped causing damage 44 percent at the time more when they had a haptic vr system versus a non-haptic vr system so i guess the conclusion there from my perspective is lots of really clever um people have done a lot of study in this space and what they found is um, VR is significantly better than traditional training techniques and haptic VR is, significantly improvement, is a significant improvement on VR training. So it's kind of a double up benefit there.
0: Okay, cool. So who are the users of the system from MedTech and also from, uh, from hospitals?
1: Yeah, so... Um... Obviously, training happens at lots of different levels and and it's continuous it never stops in in our, in our industry for all the reasons that we all know so um there's really a number of different user groups but you you tend to find they really split into two one is the residency program the fellowship programs and and them needing to have more efficient and, and effective ways to train that knowledge and and give people 3d familiarity of of environments so that that's one. That's one user group. Um, so there we find residency uh, attendees, we find uh, fellows attending um, surgeons who are looking to increase access to volume of cases, um, and that that works quite effectively. The other part, and this is where we spend most of our time, um, is actually in with the medical device and pharmaceutical businesses. Now, those businesses have always been a significant funder of continued professional education. So in quite simple terms, you know, a lot of our users who are still in the hospitals are, you know, at a a fairly senior level, often very senior level in their career, Um, they know the basic techniques. What they're interested in learning is new nuances. So a new device comes through, I know how to do a lap coli, but now I want to know how to do it with that particular technique or that particular new robot. And it's there where, where the skills transfer comes in and the, and the training happens.
0: Okay. Brilliant stuff. So we've heard lots about Fundamental now. So I want to find out now about bringing it towards the surgical robotics market and how you guys are being applied there. So why would a, why would a surgical robotics company approach Fundamental to help them? How is your technology used by surgical robotics companies currently?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, so it goes back to that learning curve, really. Um, You know, different data points, but somewhat. for most qualified surgeons who are moving from a laparoscopic technique to a surgical robot, the learning curve for them in in applying what they know already and have probably been doing for years to that new uh, setup is somewhere between 60 and 100 cases. And with the best will in the world, those are generally going to be real patients in the operating room. And that's where, that's where we can be of real value to, to um, the robotic uh, companies. We can give them those cases to allow them to accelerate, again, that learning curve skills acquisition. So that, that's it in, in the top level. If we dig into that a little bit, um, you know, there's a number of different elements, right? So there's the technical skill of dealing with a robot. You know, you have this big piece of capital equipment that's going to come into the operating room. It's going to need to be set up. It's got to be set up in the right way. The wires have got to be run in the right way. It's got to be linked up to the the mainframe infrastructure, all of these different pieces. Now, you can learn that on the several hundred thousand dollar, million dollar piece of hardware that the hospital just purchased, but also you're taking it out of productive use. So you can learn it back at the manufacturer's uh, location, but there you've got to travel and stay there with them whilst you do that or you can learn it using virtual reality. And that's where we can really help. So um, giving um, the robotics manufacturers tools that mean that they can bring teams together to learn the technical skills, just the basic stuff, like how do you set this thing up? How does it work? How do you sterilize it? How do you sheet it? How do you put all those different pieces? What happens when an alarm goes off? You can go through all of those scenarios to get technically a team up up to speed then you can do the technical training around how do you position it onto a patient for different setups different procedures different pathologies etc and then finally you can do the piece which is how do you use this within the procedure of them itself so if i'm the surgeon and i'm leaning into my da vinci how do i how do i throw that suture in a way that's effective I can do that again in the real world, but that comes with all the inherent dangers, challenges, and and logistical problems that that, that go with that. Or I can do it in the virtual world and just keep trying. And I could be doing this of an evening at home, don't have to stay in in the hospital environment for longer to get onto the the robot at 3am, which is kind of what I was doing eight, nine years ago. Um, You don't need to do that anymore. You can just do it at home at your leisure at the time that works for you.
0: Great. So that all sounds fantastic. But what would you say if someone was to say, look, there's nothing like getting hands-on with the real thing. So do you still get hands-on with the real thing at the end of doing all this virtual reality training and, and still do a, a, just a shortened time period? And if so, how short is that time period? Set the scene a bit for me.
1: Yeah. Um, I agree. There's nothing like getting hands-on with the real thing, right? Um, I just want to minimize the potential for either the healthcare team or the patient to in any way have a, an adverse outcome and um, that that's what this is all about so to your point you know what what can this do here well it can mean that if you're going to do a cadaveric session if you've had 20 sessions already within uh, a virtual reality system that's replicating fully what that feels looks and 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 behaves as then when you land on that se- uh, in that cadaveric session you're going to have a much better experience, a much better outcome. So it can it can sit alongside, it can sit in front of traditional training, it can sit in the gap between training and patient presentation, which is often where you see a massive drop off in skills. So you know, worst case scenario for the for the robotics uh, manufacturers, you know, I spend all this money getting you up to the point, Henry, where you're ready to go, and then you don't get the patient to practice, to, sorry, to actually do that procedure and a few days drift by and suddenly you're not feeling so confident and you're not sure you want to do it on your own. Well, it can fill that gap there. And of course it can continue with you while you're in practice. And I don't mean physically in in the operating room or in the the cath lab, but rather uh, when you're um, on your own, you can keep that system with you to just continue to check, rehearse, refresh and monitor. And because of the way... Our analytics works. We can give people incredibly high levels of of, of detail and specificity on the performance, how it's developing, where something might be right or wrong, and therefore um, allow them to be more self-aware of of um, of what's happening. Um, so it's uh, it can be incredibly valuable there. But but again, you know, I agree. Hands-on is really experience. That's why we really believe in haptics because. Um, you know, with haptics, you get that hands-on experience, lining that up with real hands-on.
0: Brilliant. Cool. So do you ever have any barriers from, from surgeons or anyone who doesn't want to use the technology or gets a really nice BI headset
1: and then just doesn't use it? Uh, good question. Um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes you know, it's like human nature, right? You know, everything in the end is down to kind of how somebody feels about it. And some days, some people just don't want to do it within a virtual reality space. So that, that can happen for sure. Um, what we do to try and um, help people through that. So, so there's, I guess it falls into two areas. There's one which is, I I'm kind of not sure I like it. I'm not sure I understand how to use it. I'm not sure I feel confident within it. Often that's about more tutorial so that people learn. It's, it's, you know, none of us will remember the first time we picked up a mouse and used it with a computer, right? Because it's been around for so long. But actually, learning how to use a mouse was a skill. You know, learning to use a browser is a skill. You just got it. So we need to get people up that learning curve so they forget, or rather, they stop thinking about the virtual reality space and start thinking about the virtual patient. Okay. So if we can't get them over that hill, that's a, that's an issue, and that can pull people back. Um, and that can be down to some really basic things. I I often see it where. I'll have someone say to me, you know, I can't, I've can't. i been using it for 10 minutes and I can't see the detail that I want to see. It's a, bit, it's a bit grainy. It's a bit pixely. And I'm just like, well, just wiggle your headset a little bit on your face. How's it now? And they're like, oh, my God. Like, yeah, it can be as simple as a mechanical thing where it just isn't quite in the right space. A little bit of readjustment and, and you're there. So that, that can happen. I think the other thing there is that once you've got over that, you know, this is still personal preference, and some people will, I'm sure, always say that's not for me, and that's, of course, something we totally respect. But, but when we show the insight that comes out of the system, you know, the the level of understanding about what's happened, not to a level of well, that looks like you've done a good job, but rather, you know, you're you're two millimeters out here. The the thing that you caught here would have caused this adverse effect. You know, that level of detail often brings people back because they're like, okay. It's good to be assessed, and also I do it entirely privately, right? I'm doing it inside a virtual space where I can see my data at the end, but I don't have to share it i can I can analyze it, understand it, become more self aware and then go back into the simulation or into the real world and and yeah you know, apply that that new level of skills
0: so that's really interesting that you can go into such depths of detail and give such good feedback. So how do you actually ensure that the simulations and the scenarios are all accurate to, to real life?
1: Yeah, um, you'll be glad to know it's not me. Um, I we have, we have within the business, a, a fantastic medical team um, of doctors, uh, of educators, who are trying to break down different procedures to understand where is the key educational needs within that procedure and how do we best bring that to life within um, the simulation because a lot of it can be done physically some of it has to be done yeah, and, and virtually with the, you know, the the graphics some of it might need to be done with questioning and such like so there's some basic educational learning theory that has to be applied as well so that's the first bit of it the other part is um, key opinion leaders yeah. so again I, I mentioned you know, a lot of what we do is with um, medical device companies, pharma companies who will have their very trusted KOLs who are helping to develop their product for them. Well, we have the same and we plug our KOLs into their KOLs and work out together what really matters and how does it really need to perform. Um, and again, a good example of that is, you know, if you've, if you've got a, if, if your audience is a set of surgeons that have been doing a procedure for 20 years and you just need to get them to understand a new technique or a new device, a new implant um, that's just going to change the way they do that procedure. Well, in, for those guys, you don't, or those people, you don't need to teach them the approach unless it's changed. You don't need to teach them how to suture unless it's changed. So you can focus in right on the area that really matters to them because they don't want to do it the peripheral because they do it all the time or rather... They often will have other people to do that for them because that's part of that learning process that they're developing. So you just need to focus it right in. So we, uh, we take our KOLs, we take our medical panel, we plug into our customers' KOLs and into surgical leads within the hospital groups and together argue out on paper what's mat- what matters and then code that and bring that to life.
0: Right. So let's just say I'm a surgical robotics company. I come to you and say, hey, Richard, I want to improve our training and education through VR. What's the process that company will go through from, from first onboarding until implementation?
1: So it will um, it will basically involve that process, first of all, of uh, looking at the device, the procedure and, and the learning objectives, the challenges that that, that particular organization has. Um, you know, in some cases, that could be as simple as, you know, this piece of capital equipment is a million dollars and weighs three tons. So moving it around or moving people to it is really difficult. So all we want to do is get someone in a room and allow them to be able to interact with the digital twin of that piece of capital equipment. So that that could be the, the objective. And then you break it down to the next level and say, okay, so what are the important things we need to get through in this process? And as you build that through, you then start to, to design the uh, the simulation itself. So that was a simple end. At the other end of the extreme, you could have a gene therapy or a, uh, a you know, highly complex cardiovascular or similar um, uh, piece of activity or robotics piece of uh, activity, soft tissue. Um, so again, what we do there is deconstruct the challenge, the learning objectives, the key parts of the movement and the anatomy, and then once we all agreed on those pieces, then we would attach those to our platform. The platform and then bring all of the other things that we have available. So the multi-user, the data analytics, the uh, distribution, user management, LMS integration, and all of those elements, we'd plug them into all of those pieces. And that would then stand up the, uh, the first simulation for them. And that's a process that, depending on how fast they want to move, it's going to take somewhere between three and probably six months to do. Um, We can move it faster. Often people want to move a bit slower because of their own developmental cycles. But uh, yeah, it's ordinarily going to involve those type of things.
0: Good, good. And can you give me some examples of the surgical robotics companies you're currently supporting?
1: Yeah, um, I can. I can. There's some of them are... um, not available for public at the moment. So I have to leave a few off the off the list, but but we're certainly working in a number of different areas. I guess our lead um, public uh, customer is um, CMR Surgical um, that we've been working with now for, well, I guess probably three years now um, on the rollout of their Versius um, platform. Um, We've been working extensively with them. We also work with Vicarious, the uh, single port, earlier stage single port robotic system, um, and a few others. But the others, unfortunately, I can't talk publicly about.
0: That's okay. No problem. Um, I guess for the future of your technology, what are some of the exciting projects that you're working on at the Bennett? Um, internally at Fundamental that um, is, is like future technologies or like advanced haptics or it might even be better virtual reality? What? What are some of the things you guys are working on that's able to be shared?
1: So, um, we, we're really deep in a few different sectors. So robotics is one of them and some of the developments that are going on in robotics right now are are really interesting. So we're from, from our, um, our platform standpoint, we're trying to keep ahead of that curve. So looking at the different ways, um, inverse kinematics work within robotic systems so that we can create true digital twins that allow for that technical training, that setup training or that procedural training to happen as real life as possible. Um, and I guess that's the trend that we're starting to see now, which is, you know, we want simulations that aren't running simulated versions of our tech. We want them running the actual tech. So bringing our customer's software into our software is a is a big and exciting and challenging area for us that we're working on. Um, Applying, you know, it's it's an overstated um, phrase, but AI and machine learning, everybody talks about it, um, but actually applying that in a way onto our platform to do a couple of things is is really exciting for us. The first of those is um, really trying to understand and predict how someone's learning will change over time rather than just report what they're doing. We're starting to see some really interesting output from our data science team in in that area and starting to put that back into our customer simulations. Um, that, so that that's a really uh, interesting area. The second one for us is really around um, assistance. So um, being able to give intelligent help in real time based on uh, audio input from the user, i.e. just as you would with your mentor, asking a question and getting an opinion back based on Uh, an algorithm of of, of an learned set of knowledge is not something we have today, but it's something we are pretty close on and we're quite excited about that. Um, What else? Uh, Well, the whole area of the two big components of our system is basically the headset that you wear and where it's appropriate, the haptic engine that you hold or you wear. Um, So if we take each of those, you know, the headsets continue to develop fast, yeah, Apple were into the market a couple of weeks ago with their first, uh, their first device. Um, we continue to see lots of new devices coming through. So we spend a lot of time assessing, analyzing and deciding which of those we want to support. We've always been hardware agnostic. That doesn't mean we support everything. It just means we try and support the best that's in the market. So absolutely, Apple is part of our future. Absolutely, Meta is part of our future, So too the Microsoft platform and and the uh, and, and the Pico platform. There's some great uh, elements there, and that keeps our team busy. On the other side of hardware is is the haptic engines. So we have really a couple that are in deployment, um, and they're both grounded haptic devices. so they feel like you're holding you know, an interventional tool or a robot uh, controller. Um, you can do that with those haptic devices. Uh, we have a number of exciting uh, developments happening at the moment in the in the area of haptic gloves, which again, we don't make any hardware. We just partner with the best. So Haptex is a great haptic glove. They've got a new one that's coming out at the end of this year, I hope. Um, we've been co-developing with them to get ready for that. And that's that's going to be exciting. The, the The premise for me, Henry, is really I don't want to make any hardware, but I don't want to restrict anybody by hardware either. So I want to future-proof your solutions. Um, And the way we do that is to make sure that we've got the best new hardware available for you to choose what you bring into the system. Yeah.
0: That's really cool. So does it ever create any challenges having to be hardware agnostic, having to cater for so many different devices?
1: It does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Simple as that. It does. You know, every time you add another headset, you're you're adding another overhead um, and those are real, but they're, they're a cost that I think are worth bearing because I think without it, you have uncertainty in this market about, well, what's gonna happen? What if what if Meta do a 360, do a 180 on their their approach and I've got lots of Meta devices? Well, from our perspective, the answer is no problem. We have six others that that are maybe not as good or possibly better depending on where you are on the, the kind of release cycle. No problem. We can just port across. So it it's it is it is an overhead, but it's a really important one. Um, on the haptic side, it's b- bizarrely it's actually slightly easier there. Um, and the reason for that is we um, we spent the last six years developing what we call our haptic intelligence engine, which is um, a system for allowing um, haptic different haptic interactions to be ported from different hardware engines. Pretty seamlessly, and so we're able to do that um, across a glove or a grounded haptic device. So um, again, it comes with an overhead, but it's it's one that's worthwhile for sure. Um, But one of one of I guess one of the other things connected to that is we've um, we've actually opened up a lot of the platform now um, under the brand Fundamental Core, which is a set of developer SDKs. Uh, What we're hoping, and literally this is launching. We announced it a couple of weeks ago, we're actually launching it uh, from July 1 uh, as downloadables into Unity, and we're hoping that people are going to pick up those tools, creation, uh, adaption tools that that we've published, and really start to accelerate the content, so it'll take some of the load off our shoulders because we're actually starting to give that capability to others. Richard, could you have a bit more of an
0: explainer about that topic and and what fundamental core is?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So SDK stands for software development kit. Um, So any developers who are listening to this will know exactly what that means. They'll be used to obtaining and using lots of SDKs. Um, What we've done, we took a decision a while ago that we didn't want to be completely locked down and proprietary when it came to content creation. I think over time, some medical device companies will want to do it themselves. Um, they'll want help with it though. And that's what the SDKs are designed to do. So they are um a suite of downloadable um development kits, as the name would suggest, that means that you can move much faster. So I'll give you some examples. So um really basic stuff like I need an operating room or I need a cath lab. Um, you know, you could you could spend I you and I could spend days putting that together or you could just pick it up out of one of our SDKs and just brand it the way you want to. So it's really easy to put your logos in there, put your branding in there and that sort of thing. So that's a fairly elementary, but but really useful area. Second area is slightly more complex. Things like um, 3D anatomy and how it performs and how you, you program it. We've again built a number of elements that you can just drag and drop. Um, haptics are really complex. Um, we actually built our haptic SDKs to speed up our own system because the the physics and the calculations that go into making really good haptics are incredibly specialized. And so we wanted it to be something that all of our 50, 60 developers could use as opposed to just having it inside the heads of two or three people. So we we built them for that purpose. We've now we've now packaged them up and we'll be releasing those out to uh, other developers to use. And then the third part is I guess, really providing access to some of our infrastructure. Uh, And this is coming at it from the standpoint of, um, you know, we'd like to have a unified open delivery system. So you may well have a developer listening to this who goes, you know, I know how to build a great simulation. I've been able to do that before. I can put it together. But what I don't have is a robust user management system that means I can control the licensing on it and make sure that I get paid fairly for it. Or, I don't have all the data analytics systems in place, and the overhead of putting that fully in place would be pretty high. Um, or, you know, the whole distribution system. So, I want to be able to decide which countries can access this in which way. Well, all of that, you could just bring it to our system, plug your current simulation straight into all of those tools, and publish. So, we're hoping it's going to be a real enabler. Um, Well, certainly it's an enabler for our teams, so our our own teams are using them to move faster. We hope it will be an enabler for other developers who will go, ah, that helps me get there quicker. We also think in time, some medical device companies will start to want to have some of this in-house and start to build their own teams. And so at that point, we want to be able to give them the tools that allow them to do the creation, the adjustments or the the publishing. Of course, who gets access to this? Anybody who uh, registers uh, that anyone can go to fundamental corecom or you can find it off our main website fundamentalsurgery.com. Um, they just need to fill in a registration. Um, there is a $99 charge uh, but that's really for gating so that we don't end up with lots of um, school children wanting to use it and, and and kind of drawing our resources away from those who are trying to publish proper simulations. but so there's a nominal fee for, for access. Um, and then you don't pay anything for them until you want to commercialize the simulation so you can build in our system, you can build with our tools, you can use that on the test accounts It's only at the point where you say actually now I want to use this commercially that you then attach to our licensing system and that's where we have a a fee attached to that um but you know we're as I was saying to you' offline you know we um we we opened up registration about three weeks ago for this we're going to turn on the the downloadables from July 1. Um, So I don't really know how people are going to use it until that point. We've had some great registrations. Lots of people are interested, but quite what they do, that's the exciting bit, right? Because you never know quite what people are going to do with something until you put it in their hands.
0: So do you think there's going to be a lot of user-generated content that's going to get re-uploaded back to Fundamentals so it works both ways? You share with them and they share back now?
1: That's exactly what we're hoping. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. So we will, you know, again, just to be clear, we... We will have, just, just as you know the app stores have, Apple App Store has, we, we will have a, a submission and approval process so that we make sure the quality is good enough. That there's nothing legal or, or obscene within any of those simulations. But assuming that it's legitimate content that's designed for surgical training and education, then yeah, we hope people are going to bring a lot of that into the system and use it.
0: Okay. stuff. So one of the reasons I brought you on the podcast inside to have you on is because you have a unique perspective. You work with a lot of surgical robot companies on their training education. You have kind of an inside scoop. So I want to find out more about what what you're seeing from the market. So what trends do you see in surgical robotics? And it can be from a training education point, but also more generally, if you've got some insight
1: there. Yeah, I'll certainly try. Um, So, you know, I think, it's really interesting what's going on in the soft tissue space at the moment. And again, if I, if I kind of approach this as soft tissue robots and hard tissue robotics, um, let's, let's focus on soft tissue for the time being. Um, so this, the soft tissue world is, is there's so much innovation happening there right now. You know, you've got obviously Intuitive, who've been around for a very long time. They have real dominance. I was reading the other day, seven and a half thousand systems out there. Um, I think a new, a new procedure is being started every 15 seconds or something on a, on a da Vinci. It's, it's incredible. Um, and obviously they've been innovating hard. They've been innovating in our space in terms of how you use vision um, within the systems, because they are in effect a virtual reality system. You know, you don't actually see the patient. You sit a console looking at a representation of the patient. So it's a, it's a form of immersive technology. Um, their new single port system, I think, is really interesting. So too their Bronco system, and really interesting to see how those develop through. I think you know the, the traditional format, Da Vinci main robot, I think, is going to be dominant for some considerable time to come. Um, and then you've got all of these new entrants. So you've got one of our customers, so C M R. You know they've they've made incredible steps forward over the last couple of years. Um, I saw the other day they've had over ten thousand uh, cases now done on the on the Versius system. Um, you know, very different form factor, uh, able to go into smaller smaller areas, much more portable between operating rooms, I believe. So uh, again, that's that's really interesting, and I think that size reduction is one of the trends that I think you're starting to see with some of the the newer startups and and later stage growth startups that are in the business. Of course, the other two big systems is, is the Medtronic, Hugo, and of course, J&J, Otavia, and, um, or Otava, sorry. Um, and, you know, that they're, they're right at the beginning of their journey, right? Um, you know, Hugo is obviously out, and, and there are some some cases now starting to be done in, in different locations, test cases. Um, the J&J proposition is still some way off. Um, but there you have two units that look to me to be head-on, Taking on the Da Vinci core system. And that's going to be a really interesting fight as that works through. The good news is, of course, you know, I think it's something like 6% of surgery is done at the moment using robotics. It might even be less than that. It might be down to three. It's certainly somewhere between three and six percent. So, so the opportunity to grow the market across these different systems is is immense. And now you're seeing this validation coming through that is proving the efficacy. Of robotics which has been missing for some time um that's a really really uh interesting and exciting thing so you've got some you've got some really interesting big units going on with the hugo and the jnj proposition the smaller form factor with uh the cmr you know one of our other clients vicarious with their single port entry and a, and a truly revolutionary um uh inpatient system um that you know, the, the guys over, over there have done an amazing job in bringing that together. They've still got some journey to go yet to get through the FDA approvals, but that's lining up really well, and I think that's going to be a real challenger into the space. And then I think, you know, staying with that smaller footprint, I think you then get into some of the other interesting new devices coming through. The one that I'm really interested in at the moment is, is uh, quite a stripped-back robot, and it's, it's the Moon Surgical System. Um, because you know now, you know my my business is about accelerating the learning curve. I Moon mean, Surgical have come at it from a really interesting perspective, which is let's keep the same basic skills there. Let's use the same many of the the same tools. So you're not you don't have such a a, a curve to go through when it comes to learning how to use that robot. Um, and as a result you're seeing really rapid use of that going on. I was watching so I was reading some of their um their test cases the other day. And, you know, in France, I think in one day they did something like 14 different test cases across about five different um surgical disciplines, which is really phenomenal. I mean it couldn't it couldn't happen in any other way except for the way that they put that robot together. So I think that's that's really interesting. Um so lots going on in the soft tissue space. I think in the hard tissue space, you know, what I think you've seen there with J and J and with Stryker is they've really buttoned down that capability um, for, particularly in orthopedics, for for using you know robotics to really help the precision and the and the and improve the outcomes when it comes to hard tissue uh, interactions. So those, those those have moved really really well. I think they're really really interesting. I think you know again as a as a as somebody who is all about immersive technology, and I made the point that you know, certainly some of these systems, like the Da Vinci, is an immersive technology in itself. But because I'm so into it, I'm really into the idea of uh, virtual reality headsets being used to enhance vision. Now, I think today, in most cases, the optics have not been good enough to, to warrant giving up a normal screen, but we're starting to get there now. It's really starting to get there you know the the new uh the new Apple device a ma- massive step up in in the quality of the uh of the, of the optics and so I think that's starting to really push the opportunity for new headsets to make it into the operating room to support robotics and what I hear from a lot of the manufacturers that I talk with is uh, there's there's quite a lot of initiatives going on in that space right now so I think we're going to see Probably over the next two to five years, I think we're going to see a few uh, immersive headsets landing connected to robotic systems.
0: Okay. So, what opportunities does that create? So, um, you're a lot more into the immersive tech space. So, someone's got a virtual reality headset in the OR. What potential does that give to level up the surgeon, and and what what can they actually do with that headset?
1: Well, I think a couple of things really. So, again, if we if we if we assume that the quality of what they're seeing is as good as what they would expect it to and need it to be so it's got the, the it's got really good quality uh, optics within it uh, if we take that as red and by the way you know again these systems are very close to that already if not at that point um what does it deliver well it 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 removes the friction of a second screen of having to look to different directions for a second screen it removes the um the binocular Uh, vision output that you see in a number of these different current systems, which are great, but I know that for some users can be challenging. So it creates a new opportunity to to do that a different way. What it also does, and this is again, really, really important, is it allows for the opportunity for um, augmented reality overlay so that you can start to bring in other uh, vision capabilities, which again, to be clear, you can do that with flat screens as well but you can do it in a much more three-dimensional way through those screens. Uh, sorry, through those headsets. So I think it offers all of those opportunities. And I guess the final one from my perspective is, and one of the things I love about our system is, you know, I, c- I can let everybody have the same vision I've got. I can say I can literally give you the ability to see it the way I see it. And so if you go back to the real world environment, having either students who are, who are observing or having um, um uh, people assisting or um, or tutoring through a procedure, it allows us all to see exactly the same at the same time. Uh, again, whether we're in that space or whether we're in another space, it just it just gives us that that capability. So I think I think there's a number of things that could go on there. And again, I guess the the, the final point before I pause is um, much the same as our SDKs. You know, and once you provide that capability, then you start to see what people will do with it as well. So I think it it can take it into other areas in addition to the ones that I talked about.
0: Brilliant stuff. And so let's paint the picture. Five to 10 years down the line, what does surgical training and, and what does training and education space of healthcare look like to you?
1: I think um, we will be in a place where the use, I think we've already got to the point now where the industry accepts that immersive tech has a significant role to play in accelerating and improving training and education, whether that's at entry level with residency, or whether that's at practitioner level where you're just adjusting and and acquiring a new skill. I think think we've crossed that divide already. So if I think forward five to 10 years, I think what we're going to see there is a much wider palette of capabilities um, available to healthcare practitioners. I think we're going to see more joined up Um, outcome data. So at the moment, validation sits in, you know, it's constructed validation pieces. Where we need to get to is to true health economic outcomes. And the only way we get there is to keep integrating into the full delivery system so that we can say, well, actually, in time, the outcomes of somebody taught using this type of activity or who has this type of immersive tech available to them to refresh and revise on um, you know the health economic outcome is improved as a result of it. That's the point of when you start to get into you know people understanding really what this can do and therefore the the true human and economic out, uh, benefits, yeah, less error, meaning less costs, meaning less time in hospital for patients, improving all of those elements. I think the other thing you can do is the costs keep coming down is it can really aid the um the access to these skills so you know there's a very well known stat you know the world health authority says that 5 billion people worldwide don't have good ac- don't have access to good surgical skills uh, and that that has a real impact on their lives uh, day in day out um we can move this knowledge across and the, and the reason for that sorry is it's because of the the difficulty of training so we can we can change that paradigm through immersive technology through this sort of activity and we're doing it already actually with um so orbis is one of our partners the eye charity you know so our system goes to well everywhere but it goes, goes to lots of third world locations where it's teaching really basic cataracts procedures but life-changing you know, life-changing for the individuals who are involved in it so um, I think it's going to it's going to move all of those areas. I think it's going to improve basic training in developed worlds. I think it's going to open up access in developing worlds. I think it's going to improve patient outcomes as we start to really understand the impact of learning in this in this environment. And I think the final point is it's going to make um, the uh, the health professionals have a better career or a better uh, working environment because. You know, the impact on the human being when, when there's an error, is not just the patient, it's also the person involved in the care of that patient. So we can help on all of those factors.
0: Brilliant stuff. I think that's an incredible point to end on. So thank you very much for sitting down with me today, Richard. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Search
1: Podcast. Thanks very much, Henry. Really, really good to be with you. Thanks very much. Appreciate it.